There are events in history, even in recent history, which just transform the landscape of our lives. Twenty years ago, when there was terrorist attacks on this country and really on several countries around the world, it changed the way we traveled, it changed the security measures we took. Even in churches, there was video cameras watching who came in and who left. It's hard to imagine that before that, you could actually go and greet someone at the very gate when they were arriving by plane. It's unimaginable now. And now we're facing another crisis worldwide, this COVID-19 virus. And it, of course, is changing the way we interact with each other. It's changing our economies. And it may leave a permanent imprint on the way we interact with each other. A French newspaper last week wrote an article saying that the reason this virus is not spreading so rapidly in France as it is in Italy is because the French don't hug and kiss each other as much as the Italians. Maybe so, I don't know. It may change the way even the Italians behave. Today we're celebrating a life-changing and world-shaking historical event, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. All of history's course has been changed. He died, he was buried, but then on the third day he rose again. And he said something interesting, something profound, something that I'd like to talk about today. He said that because he lives, even if we die, we also will live. Immortality. That's what he was talking about, immortality. So today I'd like us to think about this promise of immortality. And just to give you an idea of where I'm going, we'll talk about why we seem to not be made for death. Why death, a part of our existence now, really is foreign to us. And secondly, I'd like to talk about what kind of immortality Christ meant. And then lastly, why there's good reasons to believe this promise. Here's two reasons why I don't think we're made to be ruled by death. We're not made to be ruled by death first because we fight for life. There's something in us that's always fighting against injury and disease and death, even though it's a natural enemy. It surrounds us. It's always pressing in on us everywhere. This virus is just one example. There's always some disease at every stage of life that is attacking us. We are terrorized as a race and constantly have to fight in order just to live. But we want to live. There's something in us that wants to live. But death seems the natural course of this life. Something is wrong with this world, it seems to me, that what we want so desperately is contrary to the way everything seems to be set up. When you fall down the stairs, if you break your bones, if you bleed, it just happens. It's automatic. You don't have to call some specialist who's gone to school for years to learn how to break bones and then pay him big bucks to have your bones break. No, it just happens automatically. It never goes the other way. It's not like if you have a backache, you throw yourself down the steps and you say, there, that feels a lot better. No, you have to go to some place where someone has gone to school for years to fix bones and to fix injuries and then they send you a big bill. Just living, just being healthy seems contrary to the way nature works. Death seems to be the reality, and it wounds us, not just physically, but 
in our hearts. People we love die. They're taken away from us forever. And the best efforts that we have, the best efforts of science and medicine fail. And we're left broken and shattered. Death wins, we lose. And everything in us says this is not right. I take it as a kind of an inkling in us. Maybe an inkling from God himself that we're not made to be ruled by death. But that's just the first reason. Here's a second reason why I think we can't be made to be victims of death. Because it limits God's love for his people. We're not made for death because death limits God's love for his people. Love by its very nature does not have an expiration date. Not true love. When we love someone, we can't really bear the thought of that love ever ending. There's other wonderful experiences that we have in life that we can imagine ending. We can get tired of eating chocolate cake. We can even get tired of a fabulous vacation after a long time, maybe after a short time. I had a friend who had a beautiful home. It was on a mountain range. It was on this mountain slope, overlooked this beautiful valley and the mountain peaks. And you know what? He said he was looking for a job in the city because he really wanted to live in the city. He can get tired of most anything, even if it's beautiful and great. But love is different. We want to enjoy love forever and ever. And God's love is everlasting. That's what God says in many places. For example, in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, it says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love. But if that's God's intent, if that's the nature of God's love, what if the objects of God's love don't last? Then this everlasting, omnipotent love of God is thwarted by our deaths. And it's hard to imagine, but God's left grieving helplessly. He's left saying, you know, I wanted to love you so much more. I had so much more to give you, but you're gone. To me, that's unimaginable. God's love, therefore, is relentless. That's what the scripture says. He rescues us from death for the sake of his love, for his everlasting love. Some of you have probably seen that movie taken about a father who has to rescue his daughter, but there was a real-life version of that that happened a few years ago. A man in Houston named John Clark had a 16-year-old daughter, high school, and she was seduced by someone on social media, slowly worked and then kidnapped and taken in by this sex trafficker. Now, what did the dad do? You think he'd say, well, I've got other kids, you know, too bad? No, not at all. He pursued her. He, in fact, didn't even rely on the police completely. He said, no, they're too slow. I can't wait. I have to do everything I can. In fact, he did many things, including using the very social media that was used to trap her to send a message to her kidnappers. And here's what the message said. I quote, we're coming for you. You have no idea how much heat is coming your way. Love doesn't say, oh, well, nothing I can do. No, love relentlessly pursues the beloved. It can't be satisfied to lose the beloved. And God's love is like that. That's what Jesus said. He said it in many places, but there's these stories in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, which are beautiful and simple and powerful. The first one says, God's love is like a shepherd who leaves 99 of his herd behind. And he goes and he 
walks over hills and valleys and he finds the one sheep that is missing, that's caught in some thicket somewhere. God's love is relentless and when he finds the sheep, he carries it back on his shoulders. Then he told a second story in that same chapter, Luke 15. He says, God's love is like a woman who loses one coin. And she doesn't say, you know what, I've got lots of coins, so be it, I'll be fine. No, she tears her house apart. She cleans every nook and cranny of the house looking for that one coin. It's relentless love. God says, you're like that, I'm like that. We're precious to God. And because his love is relentless, he will not let us go. And so that is the second reason. God's love, which is everlasting, God's love, which is relentless, makes no sense if the objects of his love, you and I, are destined to die and turn into dust. It mocks God's boast of an everlasting love. So for God to love us, the way he wants to love us, he has to make us immortal. He has to make us immortal. Not just live forever, but to live forever in the sunshine of God's love. So that's the first point I want to make, that we're not made to be ruled by death. And the second point, which is brought about by Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, which is the good news of this immortality, is, well, what does immortality mean? What does immortality mean? Let me be clear, I mean it in the sense of the text that was read earlier in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And if you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm just going to look at really two words which are repeated here. The Apostle Paul here makes clear what kind of immortality he's talking about. So, for example, in verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will be raised, it says, imperishable. That's the first word, imperishable. It's repeated again in the first part of 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. It's repeated again in 54. When this perishable would have put on the imperishable. You know what the word imperishable means, right? It's a pretty easy word. We use it all the time. Incorruptible. Without decay. We use it of items in the grocery. They're non-perishable items. There's no use by date on us. We're always fresh and living and alive. That's what it means. Imperishable. And the second word is the word immortal. It's again used at least twice here in 53. This imperishable puts on the imperishable. And then the mortal must put on immortality. Then repeat it again in verse 54. It says, when this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And immortal means beyond the grasp of death. Death cannot, cannot touch us. It's a very powerful word because elsewhere in Scripture, for example, 1 Timothy 6, 16, it says, God alone is immortal. God alone. It's part of his nature. He has life in himself. And now it says here that he has imparted his life to us. It's the life of God in us, immortal, beyond the grasp of death. So when Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through this good news. That's the kind of immortality we're talking about. That's what Christ came to accomplish through his resurrection. Now, there's many ideas of immortality. There's many even dreams of immortality that people have. 
Mostly, they mean by it, living a long time. Starting in the 1930s, they started doing experiments on longevity, and they did experiments on rats, and they found that if they deprived rats of calories, they were on a severely restricted diet, that the rats tended to live longer. I'm not saying they were happy, they just tended to live longer. And so, you know that many of us are finding that, yeah, maybe we should live like those rats. You know, I mean, at least restrict our calories. No chocolate cake, no ice cream, nothing with fat. Just restrict our calories and we'll live for a long time. Whether we'll be happy or not is a separate question, but we'll live for a long time. Others, in more modern times, with lots of money, these multi-billionaires who have made money hand over fist are betting their money on long life for themselves. One such multi-billionaire, Bill Maris, who has a biotech company which is trying to find the genetic code for aging, says that he expects we'll be able to live to be 500 years old. Another entrepreneur, a wealthy entrepreneur who owns many companies, including a biotech company, says that soon death will be optional. What option would you take? Would you want to live forever? I mean, would you want that? Would it be interesting? Would it be boring? One writer, Susan Ertz, says, millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Good point. Would you want immortality? We're talking about Jesus' offer of immortality. It's not just living forever, day after day, year after year, but it's living forever in the sunshine of God's love. It's living forever experiencing God's love. It's living forever in his presence. That was his promise, remember. Just hours before his death in John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to live forever in my presence, with my friendship, with my love. And we'll never get bored with that. You see, we don't get bored with real love. We never do. I think we get tired of love that's manipulative. We get tired of love that's shallow. Or even if it's foolish and hurtful, of course, that's not true love, is it? It may feel like love for a while, which is why it seduces us, but it doesn't really nourish us inwardly. We don't long for it. It's more like candy. It tastes good for a while, but you can only eat so much. You know, you get sick of it after a while. But true love always satisfies us and yet always leaves us hungry for more. That's what love is like. I know you love your kids. We all do. A lot of families right now have their kids at home, kids which are usually at school, and they're wondering right now how much they love their kids. Maybe not as much as they thought. And they're longing for the kids to go back to school. It made me think of a cake recipe. I don't know the recipe, but I remember the name of the recipe. It's called BTS cake. And BTS stood, we were told, in polite company, for better than school. Tastes better than having a home with kids at school. When the kids were at school, though, the parents smiled at each other because they knew what the S really stood for. But you know what? And it is really good cake, I will say. I haven't had it for a long time. Maybe people who make cake will remember the recipe as I mention it. But I'll tell you one thing. No matter how good it is, you can only eat so much. You get tired of it after a while. It's too sweet. But let me tell you something about God's love. God's love is B-T-L, better than life. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 63. 
Your loving kindness is better than life. It's saying that I'm more likely to get tired of taking breath in than to get tired of your love. Your love is better than life. And that means one lifetime is not enough to take it all in. And so, you know, Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 3, 18 and 19. He's saying, you can't do it. You can't comprehend this love. Let me pray for you that you'll get a glimpse of it. So he prays, may you have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know, and by know here, he means experience. Actually experience it in your life. And to experience this love that surpasses knowledge. In fact, in the previous chapter, Ephesians 2 verse 7 It says, it's going to take God all eternity to show you all of his love. It says, God's intention is to show you the exceeding riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus for all the ages to come. It's such a deep, rich, everlasting love. And so, you know what? We have to be immortal. We just have to be. How else can we know this love? How else can we experience this love? How else can God give us the love that he wants to give us? And so, we must have eternal life. And how is it? Well, the enemy is death. You know, there's so many contagions in this world that bring death to us. But what the Bible says is that the resurrection of Jesus is a contagion that brings life. Because I live, you will live also. It's a contagion. Imagine if life and health and joy were contagious. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If someone healthy came close to you and for some reason you had forgotten to wear your mask, And you would leave and you'd feel stronger and healthier. If someone over there who was really a happy person sneezed, you'd find joy welling up in your heart. Now that would be a good life. That'd be the kind of world I'd want to live in where health and joy and peace was contagious. And Jesus' resurrection is the holy contagion of immortality. Medical experts, you know, now are trying to defeat this virus with a kind of a healthy contagion. If someone has this virus and then they recover, they have the antigens in their blood to fight this virus. And the idea is to take the antigens and transfer the plasma of these victorious patients into those who are sick. So the healthy blood will help the sick to get better. And that's what Christ accomplished for us. Jesus defeated death. By his blood, we are all healed. We're all given the possibility of God's own kind of life, this immortal life, to be planted in us. And this contagion is passed on, well, it's passed on by drawing near to him, by being close to him. Not physically, but the Bible says by faith, by trusting him, by believing in him, by putting your life in his hands, by saying the simple prayer, my Lord and my God, I do believe that you rose from the dead. I do want to follow you. I do want to be close to you. And this contagion comes into our life, this holy, healthy life contagion. So he grants us immortality. Well, will I die then? Yeah, you may die physically. But Jesus said, even if you die, yet you will live. So that death becomes like a speed bump on the journey of life. Because our ultimate destiny is to enjoy God's love forever and ever and be immortal in order to do that. What kind of immortality? It's living forever in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, enjoying his friendship and his love. Then thirdly, lastly, is this true? 
Is there reason to believe that the resurrection is real and the promise of immortality is something trustworthy? Can I really bet my life on it? Well, this is worthy of books, and you know many, many books are written on it. And I'd encourage you to read some of them or look at some great websites. But let me just summarize it by saying two things. There is truth that you can examine to answer that question, and there's truth you can experience to answer that question. First, there's truth that you can examine. It's the truth of history, the evidence of history, and the Gospels basically present two facts. There's many other essential, critical facts, but there's two basic facts, and in the next few moments, I'll just tell you what those two are. First, it says that the tomb was empty. This man, Jesus, beaten, bloody, broken, executed by the Romans, was laid in a tomb, and then the body was gone. Body was gone. Everybody agreed on that. The disciples agreed. The women who went to the tomb agreed. The Romans agreed. The enemies of Jesus who crucified him, who arranged for that crucifixion, agreed. Everybody agreed that the tomb was empty. So what happened? Well, let me say here that if that's all there was, it wouldn't be sufficient to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because who knows what happened to the body? We still haven't found the body of Jimmy Hoffa, for those of you who remember him. But then there's the second fact. The second fact is many witnesses saw the risen Jesus. And I don't mean they saw some ghost-like figure, you know, like in a horror movie who appears and disappears. No, they ate with him. They touched him. They spoke with him. They saw him alone. They saw him in groups. And they saw him in large groups. And they worshipped him. To me, this is critical. This couldn't have been some bloody, limping, barely alive man who would command that kind of worship. This had to be someone who appeared full of life and glory so that they fell before him and said, my Lord, my God. So those are the two basic facts that scripture presents. And I'd ask you to examine them because both together point to his resurrection. If they saw him, but the body was still in the tomb, you'd say these people were crazy. But if the body was gone and they didn't see him, it would just be a question mark. Who knows what happened? But the scripture presents both those facts. There's many other truths, there's many other facts, many other arguments and evidences to believe in Jesus. But here's some truth, some evidence that you can consider. And I invite you to do that. And if you aren't convinced, if you have questions, I ask you to contact me. Graceforthewayorg has a place where you can contact us and I'll get back to you. Graceforthewayorg. So there's truth that we can examine, but then there's truth we can experience. When this immortality comes into your life, it changes you. And you experience that change. You find that you approach life and you live life in a different way. If you ask me for examples, really, I'd have to point you to the whole of the New Testament. But let me give you briefly two examples. And these are just illustrative. First of all, you find within yourself a power to forgive and love, which comes because you've been forgiven and loved by this immortal God. It's completely different than anything you've ever experienced before. Everybody tells you to forgive. This is not new. You're told you should forgive because it's healthy for you. And it's probably true. You're told you should forgive because it's the only way to maintain this relationship. If you want to maintain it, you have to forgive. And that's probably true also. But if you become a follower of Jesus, you find there's a whole new reason to forgive, a whole new impulse to forgive that's powerful and life-changing. 
Not just because it's good for you, not just because you want this relationship to go on, but because you've experienced an enormous forgiveness for the sins that you've committed against God. You're left saying, if God can forgive me for that, I can surely forgive anybody for anything else. You're not saying, well, that wasn't so bad what she did, so I guess I can forgive her. You're not left pretending that evil was not indeed done for you, but you're left with a scale that says, I've been forgiven such an enormous wrong against the God who loved me so perfectly. Every wrong that anyone commits against me is laughably small. Of course I'll be merciful. Of course I'll be kind. My friend Jim Grew up in hard, hard childhood. His father abandoned the family, you know. He grew up in poverty. And what was worse is his father became a sort of a notorious criminal. Everybody in town knew exactly what this guy was doing. Embarrassment and shame came to Jim. His friends teased him all his life. When he was in college, Jim came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changed him. Now he wasn't thinking about the sins that had been committed against him, but they were tiny and small compared to this big blot of sin that he had committed against God, which God had wiped away and washed away and taken away. And he was filled with a new kind of love and a new kind of power. Some years passed and he heard of where his father was. And he found out that his father now was an old man, very sick, dying. Jim could have said, well, tough luck. This is what you get. What goes around comes around. I want him to die a hard lonely, painful death. That's not what he thought. He had a new love in him. He had experienced something new and it just burst out of him. So he went and hunted down his father alone and of all his family, he was the only one there with him. He talked to him. He told his dad his story. He sang with him, read scripture, and he prayed until the day that his dad died. It changes you. It changes you. And you'll experience it. This sounds so strange To say, how can I who have been forgiven so much not forgive anyone else? Not demanding love from a dying man, not demanding that someone else do something else, but willing from the overflow of what you've experienced to pour out on others. And I'll tell you something, you'll only be convinced when you experience it. When you experience what Jim and other believers have experienced, you'll see this new impulse in you. So that's one illustration of how The immortal life in us changes us. May I give you one last illustration? It gives you courage. The immortal life gives you courage to face disease and death. We live in a time of fear. Every newscast, every single newscast seems to have a little ticker there indicating how many people have died. Here's the update. Here's the new update. State by state, nation by nation, we're told. And you know that the thought of death just terrifies some. I don't know how to deal with it, they say. And the thought of the loss of loved ones is like a nightmare from which they'll never wake. There's no kind of comfort that they can bring to themselves. But Jesus overcame death. We have courage to face a crisis like this disease. We have courage to face danger and threats. We have courage to face death. Because we're immortal. We're immortal. There was a crisis that happened in 410 AD. 410 AD. It seemed to the Christians who were living at the time like the end of the world. Rome was the eternal city, they thought. 
But now Rome was being attacked by Alaric, by the barbarians. And they were destroying it. Jerome, the great scholar, the one who translated the Bible from the original languages into Latin, saw famine and death and destruction. And he wrote these words. He was weeping, you can imagine. He says, My voice sticks in my throat, and as I dictate, sobs choke my utterance. The city which had taken the whole world was itself taken. But at the time, living in Rome was a woman named Marcella. She was born to wealth. She was a noble woman, a great scholar, by the way, of the scriptures, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she had decided to give up all the privileges of her rank and wealth and She had turned her large home into a place where people could come. She ministered to the poor and women would come where they would pray and learn the word of God. When the barbarians attacked, Jerome warned her. He wrote to her and said, escape, leave. We need you. Why don't you come here where I am? You'll be safe. And there's no moral duty to stay where you are after all. Remember, Jesus escaped when it was not his time. When death seemed inevitable, he slipped from the crowd and left. Paul escaped because he had other things that God had called him to do. Jerome encouraged her to escape, but she had work to do in Rome. And she was immortal. She was immortal. She could do what God had called her to do, and nothing could hinder it. So when the barbarians came, they came to her home and they demanded money. Such a big house, they assumed she was wealthy, but she had no money. Couldn't convince them of that. And so they beat her. Edward Gibbons, who wrote that famous history of Rome, writes this, Marcella, equally respectable for her rank, her age, and her piety, was thrown to the ground and cruelly beaten and whipped. She died shortly thereafter. Where does that courage come from? Friends, where does courage come from to have a different attitude towards the threats of death around us and yet to do what's right? yet to love others, yet to be generous and kind, yet to have courage. It comes from the knowledge that we're immortal. We're immortal. What can harm us if we're doing what's pleasing in the eyes of our Lord? So as I close, I say, now it's up to you. In John chapter 11, Jesus went to Martha and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this, he asked her. And I ask you, well, do you? Do you believe this? I know what my answer is. What's your answer? Let's pray. And as we pray, why don't you give your answer to the Lord? Dear Lord, our Savior, giver of life, lover of our souls, we do bow before you now and we ask you to hear this prayer in our hearts. You know, Lord, those who at this moment are praying and saying, I do believe, Lord. I do believe. With Martha, they're saying, I do believe. With all the redeemed of the world, they're saying, I do believe. And they're calling you Lord and God. And they want to stick close to you, the very source of life. Oh, God bless them, I pray. Hear their prayer and enter into their lives. Be with those, Lord, who are wondering. There's some wild, almost uncontrollable joy in their heart, which they can't understand. And behind that joy stands the question, could it be, could all of this be true? Spirit of God, we pray that you would speak to them. You answer that question. Call them into this eternal kingdom of Christ. Grant them immortal life. 
commit all this into your hands, Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the first half of the 20th century, there was a pastor named W.E. Sangster in London, and he brought his people through World War II, all the crisis associated with that, and then ministered to them uh, after that. At age 55, he first noticed that he was having trouble speaking, and then his leg would drag when he walked, and he, they discovered that he had a, a disease which was causing muscular atrophy. And it progressed, and there was nothing they could do. One Easter Sunday, shortly before his death, he wrote these words, and really the only way he could communicate was with a shaky hand holding a pen. He wrote this, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen! But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout it. So may God bless you. May God give you, all of you who believe in him, who are immortal because of Christ is risen, may he give you power and will and joy to shout, he is risen. Hallelujah. May God's all, all of God's children shout, he is risen and he lives forever. Amen. Amen.